Section 1 of The Life of Charlemagne This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlemagne by Notger the Stammerer Translated by Arthur James Grant Section 1 Book 1, Part 1 Book 1 Concerning the Piety of Charles and His Care of the Church After the omnipotent ruler of the world, who orders alike the fate of kingdoms and the course of time, had broken the feet of iron and clay in one noble statue, to wit, the Romans, he raised by the hands of the illustrious Charles the golden head of another not less admirable among the Franks. Now it happened, when he had begun to reign alone in the western parts of the world, and the pursuit of learning had been almost forgotten throughout all his realm, and the worship of the true godhead was faint and weak, that two Scots came from Ireland to the coast of Gaul, along with certain traders of Britain. These Scotchmen were unrivaled for their skill in sacred and secular learning, and day by day, when the crowd gathered round them for traffic, they exhibited no wares for sale, but cried out and said, Ho! Every one that desires wisdom, let him draw near and take it at our hands, for it is wisdom that we have for sale. Now they declared that they had wisdom for sale, because they said that the people cared not for what was given freely, but only for what was sold, hoping that thus they might be incited to purchase wisdom along with other wares, and also, perhaps, hoping that by this announcement they themselves might become a wonder and a marvel to men which indeed turned out to be the case. For so long did they make their proclamation that in the end those who wondered at these men, or perhaps thought them insane, brought the matter to the ears of King Charles, who always loved and sought after wisdom. Wherefore he ordered them to come with all speed into his presence, and asked them whether it were true, as fame reported of them, that they had brought wisdom with them. They answered, We both possess it and are ready to give it in the name of God to those who seek it worthily. Again he asked them what price they asked for it, and they answered, We ask no price, O king, but we ask only for a fit place for teaching and quick minds to teach, and besides food to eat and raiment to put on, for without these we cannot accomplish our pilgrimage. This answer filled the king with a great joy, and first he kept both of them with him for a short time. But soon, when he must needs go to war, he made one of them, named Clement, reside in Gaul, and to him he sent many boys, both of noble, middle, and humble birth, and he ordered as much food to be given them as they required, and he set aside for them buildings suitable for study. But he sent the second scholar into Italy, and gave him the monastery of St. Augustine near Pavia, that all who wished might gather there to learn from him. But when Albinus, Alcuin, an Englishman, heard that that most religious emperor Charles gladly entertained wise men, he entered into a ship and came to him. Now Albinus was skilled in all learning beyond all others of our times, for he was the disciple of that most learned priest Bede, who next to St. Gregory was the most skillful interpreter of the scriptures. 
and Charles received Albinus kindly and kept him at his side to the end of his life, except when he marched with his armies to his vast wars. Nay, Charles would even call himself Albinus's disciple, and Albinus he would call his master. He appointed him to rule over the Abbey of St. Martin, near to the city of Tours, so that, when he himself was absent, Albinus might rest there and teach those who had recourse to him. And his teaching bore such fruit among his pupils that the modern Gauls or Franks came to equal the ancient Romans or Athenians. Then, when Charles came back after a long absence, crowned with victory into Gaul, he ordered the boys whom he had entrusted to Clement to come before him and present to him letters and verses of their own composition. Now the boys of middle or low birth presented him with writings garnished with the sweet savours of wisdom beyond all that he could have hoped, while those of the children of noble parents were silly and tasteless. Then the most wise Charles, imitating the judgment of the eternal judge, gathered together those who had done well upon his right hand and addressed them in these words. My children, you have found much favor with me, because you have tried with all your strength to carry out my orders and win advantage for yourselves. Wherefore, now, study to attain to perfection, and I will give you bishoprics and splendid monasteries, and you shall be always honorable in my eyes. Then he turned severely to those who were gathered on his left, and, smiting their consciences with the fire of his eyes, he flung at them in scorn these terrible words, which seemed thunder rather than human speech. You nobles, you sons of my chiefs, you superfine dandies, you have trusted to your birth and your possessions and have set at naught my orders to your own advancement. You have neglected the pursuit of learning, and you have given yourselves over to luxury and sport, to idleness and profitless pastimes. Then solemnly he raised his august head and his unconquered right hand to the heavens, and thus thundered against them. By the king of heaven, I take no account of your noble birth and your fine looks, though others may admire you for them. Know this for certain, that unless you make up for your former sloth by vigorous study, you will never get any favor from Charles. Charles used to pick out all the best writers and readers from among the poor boys that I have spoken of, and transferred them to his chapel for that was the name that the kings of the Franks gave to their private oratory, taking the word from the cope of St. Martin, which they always took with them in war for a defense against their enemies. Now one day it was announced to this most wary King Charles that a certain bishop was dead, and when the king asked whether the dead bishop had made any bequests for the good of his soul, the messenger replied, Sir, he has bequeathed no more than two pounds of silver. Thereupon, one of his chaplains, sighing, and no longer able to keep the thoughts of his mind within his breast, spake in the hearing of the king these words, That is a small provision for a long, a never-ending journey. Then Charles, the mildest of men, deliberated a space, and said to the young man, Do you think, then, if you were to get the bishopric, you would care to make more provision for that same long journey? 
these cautious words fell upon the chaplain as ripe grapes into the mouth of one who stands agape for them and he threw himself at the feet of charles and said sir the matter rests upon the will of god and your own power said the king stand behind the curtain that hangs behind me and mark what kind of help you would receive if you were raised to that honour now when the officers of the palace who were always on the watch for deaths or accidents heard that the bishop was dead one and all of them impatient of delay and jealous of each other began to make suit for the bishopric through the friends of the emperor but charles still persisted unmoved in his design he refused every one and said that he would not disappoint his young friend at last queen hildegard sent some of the nobles of the realm and at last came in person to beg the bishopric for a certain clerk of her own the emperor received her petition very graciously and said that he would not and could not deny her anything but that he thought it shame to deceive his little chaplain but still the queen womanlike thought that a woman's opinion and wish ought to outweigh the decrees of men and so she concealed the passion that was rising in her heart she sank her strong voice almost to a whisper and with caressing gestures tried to soften the emperor's unspoken mind my sir and king she said what does it matter if that boy does lose the bishopric nay i beseech you sweet sir my glory and my refuge give it to your faithful servant my clerk then that young man who had heard the petitions from behind the curtain close to the king's chair where he had been placed embraced the king through the curtain and cried sir king stand fast and do not let any one take from you the power that has been given you by god then that strict lover of truth bade him come out and said i intend you to have the bishopric but you must be very careful to spend more and make fuller provision for that same long and unreturning journey both for yourself and for me now there was at the king's court a certain mean and humble clerk very deficient also in a knowledge of letters the most pious charles pitied his poverty and though every one hated him and tried to drive him from the court he could never be persuaded to turn him away or dismiss him therefrom now it happened that on the eve of st martin the death of a certain bishop was announced to the emperor he summoned one of his clerks a man of high birth and great learning and gave him the bishopric the new bishop thereupon bursting with joy invited to his house many of the palace attendants and also received with great pomp many who came from the diocese to greet him and to all he gave a superb banquet it happened then that loaded with food drenched with liquor and buried in wine he failed to go to the evening service on that most solemn eve now it was the custom for the chief of the choir to assign the day before to every one the responsory or responsories which they were to chant at night the response lord if still i am useful to thy people had fallen to the lot of this man who had the bishopric as it were in his grasp well he was absent and after the lesson a long pause followed and each man urged his neighbour to take up the responsory 
and each man answered that he was bound to chant only what had been assigned to him. At last the emperor said, Come, one of you must chant it. Then this mean clerk, strengthened by some divine inspiration and encouraged by the command, took upon himself the responsory. The kindly king, thinking that he would not be able to chant the whole of it, ordered the others to help him, and all began at once to chant. But from none of them could the poor creature learn the words, and when the response was finished he began to chant the Lord's Prayer with the proper intonation. Then everyone wished to stop him, but the most wise Charles wanted to see where he would get to, and forbade anyone to interfere with him. He finished with, Thy kingdom come, and the rest willy-nilly had to take it up and say, Thy will be done. When the early lauds were finished, the king went back to his palace, or rather to his bedroom, to warm himself and dress for the coming festal ceremony. He ordered that miserable servant and unpractised chanter to come into his presence. "'Who told you to chant that responsory?' he asked. "'Sir, you ordered someone to sing,' said the other. "'Well,' said the king, the emperor was called king at first, "'who told you to begin in that particular responsory?' Then the poor creature, inspired as it is thought by God, spoke as follows, in the fashion which inferiors then use to superiors, whether for honour, appeal, or flattery. "'Blessed Lord, and blessing-bestowing King, as I could not find out the right verse from any one, I said to myself that I should incur the anger of your Majesty if I introduced anything strange. So I determined to intone something the latter part of which usually came at the end of the responsories. The kindly Emperor smiled gently upon him, and thus spoke before all his nobles. That proud man, who neither feared nor honoured God or his king who had befriended him enough to refrain one night from dissipation and be in his place to chant the response which I am told fell to his share, is by God's decree and mine deprived of his bishopric. You shall take it, for God gives it you, and I allow it, and be sure to administer it according to canonical and apostolic rules." When another prince of the church died, the emperor appointed a young man in his place. When the bishop-designate came out of the palace to take his departure, his servants, with all the decorum that was due to a bishop, brought forward a horse and steps to mount it. But he took it amiss that they should treat him as though he were decrepit, and leaped from the ground onto the horse's back with such violence that he nearly fell off on the other side. The king looked on from the steps of the palace, and had him summoned, and thus addressed him. "'My good sir, you are nimble and quick, agile and headstrong. You know yourself that the calm of our empire is disturbed on all sides by the tempests of many wars. Wherefore I want a priest like you at my court. Remain, therefore, as an associate in my labours, as long as you can mount your horse with such agility.' While I was speaking about the arrangement of the responses, I forgot to speak about the rules for reading, and I must devote a few words to that subject here. In the palace of the most learned Charles there was no one to apportion to each reader the passages that were to be read. No one put a seal at the end of the passage or made ever such a little mark with his fingernail. 
but all had to make themselves so well acquainted with the passage which was set down for reading that if they were suddenly called on to read they could perform their duty without incurring his censure he indicated whom he wished to read by pointing his finger or his staff or by sending some one of those who were sitting close by him to those at a distance he marked the end of the reading by a guttural sound and all watched so intently for this mark that whether it came at the end of a sentence or in the middle of a clause or a sub-clause none dared go on for an instant however strange the beginning or the end might seem and thus it came to pass that all in the palace were excellent readers even if they did not understand what they read no foreigner and no celebrity dared enter his choir unless he could read and chant. End of section 1